Well, good afternoon, one and all. We continue in our series on Matthew's Gospel, and we come now to chapter 9. And there are three episodes here that I have um, given a, a translation of afresh that I would like to read in a moment. But I simply want to uh, sort of begin by um, paving the way and reminding us of where we are. There are 10 miracles in chapters 8 and 9. And they have consisted of demonstrating Jesus's power to heal physical ailments. There were three of those. Then we had last week two cosmic miracles, one in which Jesus showed his power over nature by calming the winds and the sea, which led to that telling question, who is this individual that the winds and the sea obey him? And then we went to Gedarene for a lesson on Jesus's power over demons. There were two demon-possessed men who were delivered of their obsession, uh, of their possession, and Jesus uh, frightened the locals and was told to go. Now we come to a few more miracles, and these miracles have as a rallying point opposition. You'll notice that in each case, a group of people comes and has a problem with what Jesus is doing. You've heard that old expression, if someone gives you lemon, make lemonade out of it. And that's what Jesus did in each of the three episodes that we have here. He was questioned about what he was doing. He was challenged about what he was doing. And in each case, he moved the situation forward and provided Matthew, uh, his listeners, as well as us, with a lesson. So the outline of the talk for this afternoon um, is on the top of page three. And the question is, what can we learn about kingdom righteousness from the three challenges posed by Jesus's opponents in Matthew 9, 1 to 17. And I want to suggest that Jesus gives us a lesson about forgiveness. He gives us a lesson about accessibility. And he gives us a lesson about joy. Forgiveness, accessibility, and joy. So let's uh, pick up the story and I want to uh, read it and go through it before um, I elaborate on our three takeaway lessons from Jesus's miracles today on forgiveness, accessibility, and joy. I've said before, I think each week since we had our Sermon on the Mount, that the Sermon on the Mount continues in action. And we see that uh, in our lesson today as well. Uh, Jesus uh, gives a lesson on the forgiveness of sins, which was mentioned um, in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus talks about reaching out to the poor and the down and out in the Sermon on the Mount, and that's addressed in our second story. And then Jesus talks a little bit more about fasting, which he actually spent quite a bit of time on in the Sermon on the Mount. And in each case, as we go along, we're learning this new kingdom righteousness that Jesus has. You see, in Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20, we were told that Jesus did not um, abrogate a single part of God's law. 
the law of Moses was something that he upheld. And in fact, if anything, he raised the bar. But it's clear that with his authority as the son of God, he had the power to interpret the law in ways that were unconventional. And today, Jesus pushes the envelope of unconventionality to its uttermost. We begin with verse 1. It's a geographical note that takes us back to Capernaum, where those first three miracle stories took place in chapter 8. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Now, that is not Nazareth. But that is Capernaum, which Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 following, adopted as his hometown. Capernaum was at the 12 o'clock position on an old clock, if the Sea of Galilee were a clock. And it has been well excavated, and one can find there the home of Simon Peter's mother-in-law. One can find there a layer underneath a newer synagogue, where the synagogue was in Jesus' day. So we're talking about matters that are historical here. You can actually go and see the building where it is likely that they lowered this paralytic through the roof. So Jesus first gives us a lesson on forgiveness when he turns the lemony blaspheme accusation of the scribes into lemonade. Matthew says, and look, they were carrying to him a person without mobility. This wasn't necessarily a paralytic. The word can simply indicate somebody who wasn't mobile. And so his friends laid him out on a cot. Now, in Mark, we know that there's a lot of color to this story, and there's actually a little bit of... You guys are amazing. We just keep going. Like the ever-ready bunny. Did you know that the ever-ready bunny was arrested? He was charged with battery. Oh, oh. There we go. Anyway, Jesus has these individuals gnawing through the dirt roof above him and the ceiling of this house and literally lowering this guy down on a stretcher. And seeing their faith, Jesus says, he said to the paralytic, take hope, lad. Your sins are forgiven. Well, and look, some of the scribes commented among themselves, this so-and-so blasphemes. The word Jesus uh, is missing. This blank, that blasphemes. And Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, said to them, Why are you thinking bad things in your heart? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But that you shall know that authority to forgive sins belongs to the Son of Man on the earth, and he says to the paralytic, up you get, take your cot, and go to your home. So, getting up, he departed to his home. Well, seeing this, the crowds were afraid. They were terrified. And they glorified the God who had given this sort of authority to people. Now, there are some interesting things happening in the story that are worth mentioning in passing before we elaborate on our lesson on forgiveness. First of all, it says that Jesus saw their faith. Normally, we associate somebody's faith with their own faith. In fact, you need to have faith uh, in order to be forgiven of your sins. But here, Jesus breaks outside the bounds a little bit, and seeing their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take hope, lad, your sins are forgiven. 
You see, I think there's something about um, transference that comes with the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Jesus is about to pronounce on behalf of God that this individual's sins are forgiven. So there's already an element of transference going on here. But it's also an antidote to the notion of individuality which prevails in our society. Um, someone has commented well that in those times when our own faith is weak, we are supported by others in the church. It's one of the reasons why we say together the creed. It's an encouragement one to another to uphold an orthodox faith. And so seeing their faith, he said to the paralytic, take hope, lad. This is unique to Matthew. It's not mentioned in Mark or Luke. And it's a note of encouragement. It says, uh, be encouraged, young man. Your paralysis is cured. Well, I'm kidding you at that point. Jesus didn't say your paralysis is cured. In fact, Jesus went to the heart of something that the man needed even more than mobility. He needed his sins to be forgiven. And so Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Well, the Bible scholars were there in the form of the scribes, and they immediately said, this is blasphemy. In one of the other Gospels, the explanation is elaborated. Who can forgive sins but God alone? There's the lemon. And now Jesus turns the lemon into the lemonade. And he responds, perceiving their thoughts, to say, why are you thinking bad things in your hearts? Here already, Jesus knows that there's an element of malice that's taken heart in the scribes. In chapter 8, there was a scribe um, who wasn't such a bad fellow and uh, had good intentions. But here, these scribes have bad motives in their heart. And Jesus, of course, says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. Well, if you're a logician, you might say, well, it's equally easy to say one thing. Your sins are forgiven, you can walk. Each takes a few words comes out of your mouth without as much energy. But the point, of course, is that Jesus is saying, I recognize that my pronouncing that this guy's sins are forgiven aren't something that you can see happen. Um, it has happened, and it will be verified when I die on the cross for the man's sins. But what if I were to say, get up and walk? Then you would be able to know that the Son of Man has an authority on earth to forgive sins as well as to heal people. And so Jesus pronounces in verse 6 what is the point of the story in one sense, but that you shall know that authority to forgive sins belongs to the Son of Man on the earth. Then he says to the paralytic, up you get, take your cot, and go to your home. Now if you look at verse 6, the syntax, the wording is strange. Uh, there's a half sentence here, but each of the gospel writers has it, which is why the translators put in dots or dashes. The main part of the clause is missing. But that you shall know that authority to forgive sins belongs to the Son of Man on earth. I say to him, up you get. But I say to him isn't there. And in fact, I think that the point here and it's elaborated by what Jesus is saying in verse 4 when he's playing this, what if I say this game and what if I say that game? That Jesus is here illustrating that he has the same power that God had in Genesis chapter 1 to merely speak something and have it take effect. 
So Jesus's point, I believe, and certainly not everyone would agree with this. In fact, I'm in a, a small minority, I think. But it seems to me as though Jesus's point is in the mere saying to the immobilized men, up you get, take your cot and go home. It happens. Jesus, like God, can affect results through his word. And so what happens? Getting up, the man got up and went home. So it's well illustrated here in that Jesus' mere speech has the power to affect change. And so this is a proof that Jesus has the power to forgive sins. But let me just step aside for a minute and do a little bit of uh, corporate navel-gazing. Why does Christ the King spend so much time expounding the Word? Uh, this was a priority of your former rector. It's a priority of your interim rector. We have a certain theology that when we get up and talk about the Word of God, the mere speaking about the Word of God has the power to convict people of their sins. It has the power to comfort. It has the power to rebuke. That the Holy Spirit somehow, through the preaching of the word, has the power to effect change in people. So preaching is kind of an act of faith. And uh, it certainly doesn't have anything to do uh, with the, um, you know, the, the, uh, the personality of, of the preacher, though if the person is a good speaker, I suppose that helps. But no, there's a commitment to the power of the word. And so for centuries, people have been preaching the Bible, and lo and behold, things have been happening when they've heard the word. Remarkable things often. And so Jesus says to this man, get up and be on your way. And just like in Genesis 1-3, when Jesus says, let there be light, and light there was, Jesus says to the man, on your feet and go home. And before you know it, he's on his feet and heading for home. Well, no wonder in verse 8, when people are terrified. Well, seeing this, the crowds were terrified. And they also glorified God, which is kind of a normal reaction when you've seen God work. You know, part of you is just spooked because you just sort of thought, wow, I mean, that was an out-of-this-world experience. But at the same time, you want to praise God for the good things that God does in people's lives. And they glorified the God who had given this sort of authority to people. Last week in uh, my sermon, I talked about taking note of words that surprised you, things that stuck out that bothered you. And what should bother you at this point is that this authority was given to people. I mean, surely the authority to forgive sins is something that's given to the Son of Man. But the likely answer lies, and there's a footnote about it, in the church's derivative role in retaining sins. If, if, the sins, if you retain the sins of some, they are retained. And if not, they are not, Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 18. And there is um, a quote um, on the third page, um, about uh, on, on C, can modern Christians also claim such an authority to offer forgiveness of sins? And one commentator here says, yes, this is done formally in the liturgical declaration of pardon. 
we confess our sins, and then the priest publicly says that Jesus has given authority to his ministers to pronounce to those being penitent the forgiveness of their sins. And so there's kind of a derivative role that takes place. Or some people suggest that it's not that authority was given to people, but that Jesus' authority was given for people. In any case, it's kind of odd. But the theology of it is worth noting. My friends, Jesus' kingdom righteousness includes the news that his authority includes pronouncing forgiveness of sins. A long time ago, there's a, there was a story of a long time ago of a man who was walking across the Canadian prairies with his daughter, and they saw a prairie fire coming their way, a grass fire, and it was blowing in their direction, and to their great distress, they looked and saw their imminent death. Uh, the, the, the grass fire was raging everywhere, and it would almost certainly kill them, but for the father's knowledge. The father knew a way of escape, and so he quickly built a fire around where he and his daughter were standing, and they burned as much grass around them as they could, so that when the fire came, it would pass around them because there was no fire left to burn in their environment. As the fire approached, the girl was terrified, but her father said, sweetheart, the flames can't get to us. We're standing where a fire has already been. My friends, when Jesus comes to pronounce the forgiveness of sins upon the paralytic, it occurs in a gospel where the cross is evident. And the cross is the means by which Jesus procured our forgiveness. And so when Jesus died on the cross, it was as though he had created a safe zone by taking the wrath of God upon himself. And so when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we stand in a zone that is already burnt out by the mercy and the goodness of our Lord. And we are spared the punishment that we deserve for our sins. Jesus, out of sheer compassion, when seeing the faith of the men who lowered this guy through the roof, and perhaps likely as well, knowing the faith of the individual, says, my friend, your sins are forgiven. I can't think of one more wonderful gift than the gift of the forgiveness of sins. Um, in our culture, we don't pay a whole lot of attention to sin. We like to say, oh, well, don't worry about it. It's all right. But I mean, it does matter. There's a lot of interest in that 21-year-old Russian soldier who is on trial for war crimes. Why? Uh, because there's a claim that he just needlessly murdered a civilian in Ukraine. And so we're conscious of sin at another level, even if we don't worry about, oh, well, you stole a cookie or I stole a cookie. We still have a strong moral conscience and know that sin needs to be punished. Friends, Jesus Christ came and took our place when he died on the cross and he procured for us forgiveness. Chuck Swindoll, in his book, the Grace Awakening wrote, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. 
If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent us a Savior. My friends, by simply putting your faith in Jesus Christ, by trusting that he's able to do this, that, that when he says he can do it, he's good for what he says, you experience the forgiveness of sins. In the local town where I was this week, there was kind of a funny sign outside of a church, and it was a play on the word know, K-N-O-W, cognizant knowledge, and N-O, negative. And it said, no fear, K-N-O-W, fear, no Jesus, N-O, Jesus. No fear, N-O, fear, K-N-O-W, Jesus, no Jesus. Jesus has uh, died for our sins, and we have the gift of salvation if we simply accept that gift of forgiveness. We come to the second story now, and it's one of accessibility. Verses 9 to, to, uh, to 13. And making his way, Jesus then saw a man, Matthew by name, sitting at his taxation booth. And he says to him, follow me. And rising, he followed him. This is another instance where Matthew wants to whisper in your ear, notice that these people, when Jesus says something to them, they obey kind of immediately and thoroughly. Like the demons and the wind and the sea did last week, but which the disciples themselves were hesitant to do. So we get a little lesson, a reminder of the importance and the value of taking Jesus at his word and obeying him. So he calls this guy Matthew, and Matthew follows him. And so it was that when he was table reposing in the house, that look, many tax collectors and disreputable sinners came to co-dine with Jesus and his disciples. Now, it's easy for us to think, well, Jesus is a compassionate fellow. He's not bigoted. He's not prejudiced. Um, he's not discriminatory. So, of course, he, he, he sat with these marginalized people. It was far more uh, controversial than that. Tax collectors and sinners were defiled. They were impure. And if a Gentile has contact with one of, if a Jew has contact with one of these Gentiles, they defile themselves. Even today in East Jerusalem, if you're in the Orthodox neighborhood and you as a Gentile are walking down the street in uh, the Orthodox neighborhood called Mea Sha'arim, an Orthodox Jew will see you coming and he'll cross the road and walk on the sidewalk on the other side. And then when you've passed, when the whiff of you, as it were, is far enough away, then he'll come back on your side of the sidewalk and carry on down. He's a holy man. Um, and that's, that's what holy people did. And of course, the Pharisees, um, are the, um, the predecessors of much of contemporary Judaism. So here's Jesus sitting with this guy who is not only a swindler, I mean, he's, uh, he's literally what we would call, I think, a, a, a sort of a bona fide scumbag. Um, he deals with Gentiles, he changes money with Gentiles, he extorts people, uh, poor people, and takes uh, the skim of their money. And here Jesus is having close fellowship He's out with a meal with them. And so too others. Matthew invites a whole horde of his scumbag friends. 
Well, no wonder the Pharisees say, what is your teacher doing eating with tax collectors and sinners? There's the lemon, here comes the lemonade. Having overheard, he said, no need have the healthy for a doctor, but the sick sure have. And then he says to these people who called him a teacher, you want a lesson? Well, here's a lesson. Go and learn what this means. Hosea chapter six, verse six says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to invite righteous individuals, but sinners. My friends, one of the characteristics of kingdom righteousness is extraordinary acceptability. Or sorry, extraordinary acceptability and accessibility. One of the things that I like about our age is that we are working towards accessibility. Uh, the driveway immediately to the west of the college would not exist if Wycliffe College hadn't installed an elevator in that little keyhole parking lot for accessibility for persons with disabilities. And so all kinds of people in a previous generation who were limited in their access now have the kind of access that they've always deserved. And I think that's really cool. And Jesus was kind of ahead of the game in this regard. And his concern was to provide access to people that other people wrote off. If Jesus were alive today, I think he would be whining and dining with people that the more religious would um, have chills running down their spines over, whoever that might be. You might think of some. Um, in your own head. But Jesus says, no, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And guess what? These people recognize their problems. I had a, a friend who worked at Sanctuary many years ago, and he had a particular disability. And it was interesting because my friend said that when he was at Sanctuary, he worked with um, homeless people, he worked with people who had had a rough time in life, alcoholics, um, and he said, never once did anyone ever ask me what my condition was. It was like we were all on the same ground, you know, you've got your issues, obviously, I've got mine, but here we are, we're brothers and sisters, worshiping together. Jesus provides accessibility, and for those of you who've ever felt left out, shunned, whether it be for ethnic, economic, societal reasons, this comes as extraordinary good news. Accessibility. David Redding was in the Navy in World War II. And he served for many years in the Navy. And he lived on a farm way out in the country. And while he was still at home, he had a dog named Teddy a big black Scottish Shepherd. He writes, Teddy was my dog and would do anything for me. He waited for me to come home from school. He slept beside me. And when I whistled, he ran to me even if he were eating. But when I went away to war, I didn't know how to leave him. How do you explain to someone who loves you that you're leaving them and you won't be chasing woodchucks with him tomorrow like always? There was no way for that dog to understand. Many years later, 
Reddit comes home from the Navy, and he says, I can scarcely describe the experience. The last busy stop was 14 miles from my farm. I got off there that night about 11 o'clock and walked the rest of my way home. It was two or three in the morning before I got within a half mile of the house. It was pitch black, but I knew every step from heart. Suddenly, Teddy heard me and began his warning bark. Oof, oof. Then I whistled but once. The barking stopped. There was a yelp of recognition, and I knew that a big black form was hurtling toward me in the darkness. And before I knew it, Teddy was there in my arms. Then Redding reflects. What comes home to me now is the eloquence with which that unforgettable memory speaks to me of my God. If my dog, without any explanation, would love me and take me back after all that time, wouldn't my God? You see, the issue with these people wasn't simply limited access, but they'd kind of earned limited access. They had alienated themselves from the faith and from God. But that didn't matter to Jesus. And Jesus sent out signals to them that encouraged them to come back. And Jesus is that kind of God who, like the dog, comes running and says, I don't know why you went away, but it doesn't matter. I'm here and I recognize your sound. Jesus's new kingdom righteousness includes forgiveness, it includes accessibility, and thirdly, it includes joy. Verses 14 to 17. Well, then John's disciples come to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast? It's almost humorous. They're sort of saying like, why are we doing this? But your disciples don't fast. And Jesus said to them, the groom's wedding party is not able to mourn so long as the groom is with them. But the days will come when the groom will be snatched from them, and then they will fast. And then he goes on and he draws an analogy. And the point is that the new and the old are incompatible. Jesus's kingdom righteousness is new. Traditional Judaism at that stage was old. So he goes on in verse 16 and he says, no one applies a portion of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch will tear from the garment and make a worse tear. Neither is new worn wine poured into old wineskins. Otherwise the wineskins burst, the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. And then again, as if to uphold the integrity of the Mosaic law, he says, but new wine is poured into new wineskins and both are preserved. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, says Jesus. Well, in this case, people were upset and they were giving lemon to Jesus because he wasn't fasting. And fasting was a barometer of spiritual uh, piety. And there was nothing wrong with that. It, it was and remains a noble practice. But Jesus's response is, there's kind of a party going on here right now, guys. My name is Jesus, I'm the coming Messiah, and I'm here with people, and a new kingdom has dawned, and it's just not appropriate to wander around moping. There will be a time when I'm snatched away, and then you will mourn the foot of the cross, 
But for now, the party goes on. Well, one of the questions for us as we look at this story is, um, well, for us today, is Jesus away or is he present? And I think the answer really is that Jesus is present, particularly in Matthew. I mean, those are the last words of the gospel. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. So that leads us to return to the question of fasting. And I think that what Jesus is wanting us and Matthew is wanting us to sort out in relation to fasting is how do we fast today? And I think a fair statement is that whatever fasting we do, which could be appropriate as a spiritual discipline, it must never be the boo-hoo, mourning, sad, somber type that was characteristic before the Messiah came. Because Jesus is still with us. My friends, the point is a lesson on fasting, but moreover, it's a point about joy. Because that is the reason why fasting is inappropriate. Jesus brings joy. What a message there is here for people today who like to be somber Christians. Bruce Larson, who wrote a book, There's a Lot More to Health Than Not Being Sick, wrote, The bottom line for you and me is this. Grimness is not a Christian virtue. There are no sad saints. If God really is the center of one's life and being, joy is inevitable. If we have no joy, we have missed the heart of the good news. And our bodies, as much as our souls, will suffer the consequences. Friends, if we have no joy, we have missed the heart of the good news. You know, there's help here in sharing the good news with our friends. You might wish you were a better apologist. You might wish you knew how to explain suffering in the world. But one of the best ways you can share your faith with others is to allow them to see that you have that sparkle in your eye. You have that peace in your heart. You have that sense of joy. We used to sing as a kid, I've got a joy, 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 joy way down in my heart, way down in my heart because uh, Jesus is living with us. Walter Knight wrote, joy is the flag that flies over the castles of our hearts, announcing that the king is in residence today, thinking of the British tradition that the flag would be flying at Buckingham Palace when the queen was resident. William Barclay wrote, we are chosen for joy. However hard the Christian way, it is both in the traveling and in the goal the way of joy. There's always joy in doing the right thing, he says. The Christian is the man of joy. The Christian is the laughing cavalier of Christ. A gloomy con Christian is a contradiction in terms. And nothing in all religious history has done Christianity more harm than our connection with black clothes and long faces. You know, you don't have to be a super analyst of culture to know that people have a lot of guilt and to hear that their sins are forgiven by God's mercy is good news. You don't have to be a super analyst of our culture to know that people are feeling alienated and as though there's kind of inequity in our culture where some have more access than others. Jesus turns that on his head and says, the people who are in the most trouble probably recognize that they need my help more than others, so they come first. And then Christianity, as Jesus teaches us in Matthew's gospel, brings joy. 
let the party begin. I think this has implications for us as a church as we look forward to the future of Christ the King and the future of worship. We're doing a survey right now, and some people are saying, we would like a little less formality. Uh, we would like um, more um, contemporary music that I can identify with. And I think that's all for the good. We maintain order, which is important for the church. But um, the Lord's Supper and gathering are an occasion for joy. And so long as we maintain a spirit of propriety, which we're not likely not to do, I think a little added joy in the way we worship corporately would be most welcome. Kingdom righteousness is explicated in chapter 9, verses 1 to 17 of Matthew. And that kingdom righteousness is characterized by Jesus, who has the authority of God to forgive sins, by Jesus, who provides access to people who've never experienced it before, and Jesus, who brings joy to a community where somber, sober religiosity was the flavor of the day. Amen.